Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everybody to episode 21 of True Blue, True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Hello, good. Back for season three. Yeah, I didn't think we'd get this far. It's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good to be a couple of weeks off and we're all refreshed and ready to go. Yeah, back into the murder. We have some more Patreon support. It's been a, a spike in Patreon support over the break, Chloe. There has. We announced a tier restructure, so we have had a heap of new patrons. Thank you to everyone who has jumped on board. I'm going to read them out in groups over the next few weeks, so we're not here for 10 minutes or so reading out names. But thank you and welcome to everyone. And this week, Laura Keane-Morris, Melissa, Sarah Schuster-Bailey, Kate Much, Mary Vericos, Libby, Fripp Gamble, Chris Hardy, Alana Hale and Matthew Green. Thanks very much for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. We'll get to a few more of those names next week, as you said, Chloe. This case we're discussing today contains crimes against children and some graphic descriptions, so we'd encourage our listeners to exercise discretion. And we're in Victoria today, an inner suburb of Melbourne, back in the year 1970, It's a somewhat well-known case, but it's a head-scratcher, particularly when you get to the subject of motive. It's the case of the Crawford family murders, and whether you've heard of it or not, by the end of this, you'll likely have the same simple question as we did when we first learned about it. Why? July 2nd, 1970, Glenroy, Victoria. Constable McCarty returned to the house at 136 Cardinal Road at around 10.15pm, towards the end of his shift. McCarty had picked up Detective Brian Wilde from the Broadmeadows CIB and made the trek back, 
after an earlier visit in his shift had yielded no response from a door knock. But since then, something had changed. McCarty could tell. Something big. He and Wilde canvassed the premises. The brick fence and house with concrete tile roof, unremarkable in the working class suburb. When there was no answer at the door again, the pair wandered down the driveway and inspected the backyard. A woman's push bike and scooter in the backyard, alongside a swing set and remnants of a small fire, showed nothing more than signs of regular domestic life. But inside the house was dark, and every door to the place was locked. McCarty eventually found a bedroom window that was ajar, and managed to pry it open and slide into the dark house. He went to the front door and let Detective Wilde in, before the pair turned the lights on and had a wander around. They walked back down the hallway and into the bedroom where McCarty had gained access, and it was here the pair noticed both single bed mattresses in the room were soaked with blood, with spatter flanking the adjacent walls. Wilde and McCarty, now acutely aware of the gravity of the situation, carefully inspected the remainder of the house, noticing a trail of blood leading from two of the bedrooms into the kitchen. Three of the six rooms in the house had substantial blood staining and evidence of violent attacks, probable murders, but no bodies. McCarty and Wilde called it in, the nondescript brick home in Glenroy now abound with light, an active crime scene. But with no bodies, they had a long and winding investigation ahead to figure out what had happened inside the home of the Crawfords in Cardinal Road, Glenroy. An investigation that would begin with a painstaking forensic sweep of the house and piecing together a head-scratching puzzle that would have police connecting dots from as far away as the Great Ocean Road, in the state southwest. The burning question would be who had murdered the Crawford family? Elma Kyle Crawford was born in Hemingford, Canada, in May of 1930. He was the son of Beatrice Crawford, but his father was unknown. The Crawford family were originally from Derry in Northern Ireland, but Beatrice, who was one of five siblings, was described as a bit of a wild child and took off for adventures in Canada as soon as she was old enough. This is when Alma came along, born as what they termed at the time as being illegitimate or out of wedlock. He would come back to Ireland with his mother soon after birth and eventually be left with his grandmother to be raised alongside his older siblings, who were actually his aunts and uncles. Crawford grew up working on the family farm, helping his grandmother bale hay and tend to the animals. He was said to have grown into a diligent young worker who was capable with his hands. He spent much of his childhood riding his bicycle throughout the streets of the small village where they lived, and his aunt Jeannie would actually end up being Crawford's predominant female influence who raised him. But good as he was with his hands, school wasn't the right fit for Alma Crawford. He made it through elementary school, what we'd call primary education here, and then went on to work on the family farm. 
His time was much more valuable there, considering the economic realities of the time. So that was Crawford's life for some time, until the age of 22, when he followed the lead of his older brother-slash-uncle, William, who emigrated to Australia. This was a big leap for a young man who'd been described as a fairly quiet child. But upon arrival in Australia, Crawford's determination would surface, and he'd play to his handyman's strengths, quickly finding work at the Victorian Racing Club in Flemington. Here, he'd be employed initially as a telephone repairman, but quickly, the powers that be realised he was very capable and a hard worker, so Crawford got promoted to the role of an unqualified electrician. He was earning $64 per week, but in addition, he was pulling overtime shifts for the VRC as a parking fee collector on the gates at weekend race meetings. So he was quite the hustler for cash, Crawford, and this is something of a trend or motivating factor we'll see recurring as Crawford rolls along in life. He even worked a second job at one point as a night watchman or security guard, so he was probably earning a decent crust doing all of this extra work. But Crawford didn't splash his cash around. He was a saver. He didn't really drink or bet on the races. He'd even refused to buy raffle tickets from work colleagues. So his attitude towards money was clear early on to work colleagues, friends and acquaintances. And that probably neatly leads to the friendships Crawford would have. And that's a quick point to cover off because he didn't really have any. Crawford was painfully quiet and withdrawn And really, he didn't form any close friendships with anyone in Australia, at work or outside of it. He'd very much keep people at arm's length and he'd not talk about much beyond a cursory surface discussion. Definitely nothing about his homeland of Ireland or his family. Still, despite his nature, Crawford was a well-regarded young man with a generally friendly disposition, a hard worker and a decent fellow. And it would be in the mid-1950s that he'd meet Teresa McManus. Teresa was one of nine children to Jim and Jane McManus, and the family hailed from rural Ipswich in Queensland. So we're talking about a big, sprawling family here in a location that was very community-oriented. People were very friendly and aware of what others were doing. It was at times a turbulent and chaotic childhood for the McManuses, but a pleasant one all in all, as I understand. They were a loving and well-regarded local family. Teresa was a young, outgoing woman, and she formed a strong bond with her sister Vonnie, the pair being the younger of the nine siblings. But as many of the McManus children grew older, the perceived lack of opportunity or restrictions living in what was a more remote location back during this time inevitably led to many of the kids travelling to faraway places in search of their own dreams. The USA, Sydney, joining the Defence Force, etc. Teresa chose Melbourne as the place she was going to go and carve out her own path in life. At the ripe old age of 21, Teresa left the Sunshine State for the grey blanket of Melbourne, and pretty quickly she found her feet. As we said, Teresa had a pleasant personality, she was very bubbly and gregarious. She found work at the Caulfield Convalescence Hospital, doing general kitchen hand and ad hoc duties. She easily made friends and became very social. Back in this time, attending dances was a popular social pastime, 
and Teresa and her friends found a favourite in the Irish dances, which they attended regularly. And it was at one of these dances that Teresa met Alma Crawford. It was all innocent fun at first. Teresa came from a relatively traditional Catholic background, so anything premarital was frowned upon at this time. Her friends liked Crawford. He was somewhat reserved, as we said, but he was genuine and nice and always had a smile in his dial, and he was a handsome young man. The courtship was brief. What was described as a whirlwind romance quickly led to marriage. On the 20th of February, 1957, Alma Crawford and Teresa McManus were married at St Joseph's Church in South Yarra. Soon after this, Crawford would purchase a block of land in Cardinal Road, Glenroy, a typical blue-collar kind of area, a decent location not too far from Melbourne but still affordable. Crawford, being the skilled handyman, hard worker and resourceful scrimper that he was, built much of the couple's house on the block himself, enabling him to save a lot on labour costs and material costs, as he picked up bits and pieces of construction material through his job for little to no cost. Not long after they got together, Teresa fell pregnant with their first child, hastening the wedding plans. And not long after their house was all but completed and they'd moved in, did Catherine Jane Crawford come along on the 4th of September 1957. So it was a flurry of activity in 1957, a big year for both Alma and Teresa, finding one another, marrying, buying this block and building before having their first child. The Crawford family fitting quite well in the suburb of Glenroy. They were well regarded. Teresa is a nice-looking, vibrant young woman. Alma is a hard-working, devoted father and a solid husband and provider. They attended local barbecues at friends' houses. Teresa was very social and made friends around the neighbourhood easily. Alma, while much more introverted, was still quite popular. Locals knew him as the reliable handyman. They'd call on Crawford for odd jobs, Mr Fixit type stuff. He had a well-stocked workshop in the garage off the side of their house where he was often seen tinkering. Kids from the neighbourhood would have Crawford patch burst tyres on their push bikes, fix their billy carts should a wheel come off, you name it. He was Mr Fixit in Cardinal Road, Glenroy. In 1962 and 1964, the Crawfords would add two more children to the brood, a son named James, followed by their youngest daughter, Karen. And not long after Karen's birth, Teresa suffered a nervous breakdown, or what was termed as such at the time, and she was given what was once again termed at the time as nerve tablets. In modern times, I think what Teresa suffered from would more than likely be diagnosed as postnatal depression. It was a tough time in the Crawford family as a result, particularly for Teresa. But Teresa's parents, Jim and Jane, were supportive, and Alma Crawford paid for them to fly down from Queensland and stay with them for a while to help Teresa through her battle, and it worked. Things went on an upward trajectory thereafter. But that last part about Crawford paying for them to fly down, flights weren't cheap, And it wasn't lost on many locals, not only the way Alma Crawford was with his money, a scrimper, a saver, as we said, but the Crawford family seemed to be quite asset rich for a sole income earning family with an unlicensed electrician on $64 a week at the helm. People knew Crawford was a hard worker, sure, taking on extra work regularly, 
but it was seemingly disproportionate, even considering that. By this time in the 1960s, Crawford had almost completely paid off the mortgage on the family home, he'd bought three blocks of land for each of the kids in Queensland, and Alma had a motorised scooter along with several thousand dollars in the bank, which was a small fortune at the time. They also had a family caravan which was parked in their front yard and would be used regularly for holidaying. This was quite the envy of the neighbours, this caravan. They weren't outwardly flashy, the family though, don't get me wrong. Their household possessions were minimal and modest, but glimpses of things like the sheer amount of stuff Crawford had in his workshop, tools, paints, materials, etc., and Teresa with the odd luxury item, such as an expensive knitting machine, all pointed to a family who had some degree of wealth that wasn't that common in the suburb of Glenroy at this time. And perhaps this was noticed. You know, we covered in the introduction the scene where the police stumbled up at the Crawford household on the 2nd of July 1970, and you've all seen the title of the episode. But many of these points would become increasingly relevant as we go along. This well-regarded, seemingly loving and kind local family, who had no known enemies, would end up being targeted and brutally murdered. There was no known deviances within the marriage at this time, no extramarital affairs, no gambling debts, no outward signs of any seedy undercurrents. Except for one small thing. Alma Crawford was a thief, and quite an adept one. It would seem that much of this underlying wealth, aside from his side jobs, had come from him stealing and on-selling items. And this stuff ranged from building materials, things like copper wire he'd take from his work, burn off the coating on a small fire outside and then on sale to scrapyards, through to tools and even clothing. He was a familiar face at auction houses in the northern suburbs, and while the majority remained oblivious to it, no one was what you'd call close to Elmer Crawford, the fruits of his labour didn't go unnoticed within the neighbourhood. A few people were wary, possibly suspecting it, but Elmer's wife Teresa certainly knew along with a few other of their close friends. It was said Crawford boasted from time to time about his thievery. His workshop was basically a treasure trove of stolen goods, always well stocked, as we earlier said, but full to the brim with plugs, wires, switches, toilet paper, soap, rope, lengths of rubber hose, padlocks. You name it, Alma Crawford had it. He also had bags full of coins, He'd pocket dozens of mostly 20-cent pieces when he was doing parking attendant duties for the VRC race meetings. So he was brazenly pilfering from his employer, and two weeks prior to this grisly scene, Constable McCarty and Detective Wilde had stumbled upon at the Crawford household, Alma Crawford had gone on holidays. I'm not sure that the family went away in their caravan this time, like they often did, It was more some time off around the house to potter about and do some things. And Crawford had been busy around the place, lots of tidying up, trips to the tip, burning off, and noticeable use of his power tools for extended periods of time, neighbours would later comment. But Chloe, we have to circle back to the discovery of the murder scene and how all of that unfolded. We have this picture now of a delightful young family, a warm and popular mother in Teresa, 
three great kids who were all bright and well-liked locally, and a respected, albeit reserved, patriarch in Alma Crawford, who happened to be a thief, which is a bad thing, but he seemingly had good intentions. He'd mentioned in recent times how he'd brought a piano for his daughter Catherine, a sizable investment, so misguided in his methods, definitely, but with an outwardly good intent, you might say. Circling back to the introduction now and unpacking what might have happened to the Crawford family. Detective Wilde and Constable McCarty had gained entry to the household and discovered the bloody scene we described earlier. There was clearly evidence of a violent attack and crime, but no bodies. As we alluded to, McCarty had attended the premises earlier that evening upon request from his superiors to conduct a routine inquiry, what was seemingly a routine inquiry at that time anyway, and that was on the basis that the Crawford family car had been located some distance from their home. Initial thoughts were that the car had been stolen, but upon visiting the house, receiving no response to the door knock and a closer inspection of the vehicle, police began to suspect something more sinister. Earlier that day on July the 2nd, 1970, David and Alan Henry were going on a day trip to the Lockard Gorge in Port Campbell National Park. This area is down towards the southwestern part of Victoria, famous for the Great Ocean Road and the Twelve Apostles. David and Alan were hoping to catch the blowhole in action at Lockard Gorge and they'd arrived in the area around 1.30pm. They left the comfort of their car and headed towards the cliff edge to check things out. Salt spray from the ocean lapped up at the cliff face, and there was a blanket of dark grey cloud engulfing the entire area. This is a very beautiful, pristine area, around 240 kilometres west of Glenroy. It is also very rugged along this stretch of the Great Ocean Road. We're talking sheer limestone cliffs and thunderous blue-green oceans. Very pretty, but many parts are largely inaccessible. Port Campbell is the closest town, and this spot, Lockard Gorge, is within the Port Campbell National Park. So David and Alan walked closer to the cliff's edge, hoping to sight the blowhole in action and some of the crashing waves tumbling into the cliffs. As they walked, Alan was sheltering her face a bit from the whipping wind, bending her head downwards as you would when walking into a strong headwind like that, and she noticed some tyre marks in the soft soil. David had wandered off to take in the view by this point, and Alan followed the tracks as they went up an incline towards the cliff face. She felt ill when she realised the tracks then descended towards the cliff and drove straight off. Alan yelled out to David, and they approached the edge of the cliff very carefully. Around 25 metres below was a smashed motor vehicle dangling off the side of a rock ledge only a few metres above the ocean. The car had clearly plummeted nose first into the rock ledge and was badly banged up, and it was teetering on a knife's edge. This thing looked like it could go over at any moment. David had some binoculars with him, so he used them to take a closer look. 
It was a pinkish cream coloured Holden, possibly an FB or FC model, and the driver's door was hung open. He could see the registration plate HKU061, but it was too difficult with the distance and the conditions to see anything in the interior. The Henry's first thought was that someone had stolen the car from whoever it belonged to and taken it for a joyride, used it for whatever purpose, then driven it off the cliff to purposely wreck it. They drove to nearby Port Campbell and reported the find to the officer on duty. And this was a small local one-man police station, right? Constable Duncan Hales took the inquiry and followed the couple back out to Lockard Gorge to inspect the scene. It was a surprising inquiry to get for Hales, who was used to more routine tourist inquiries in this area than the sites of what the Henrys were reporting. Upon re-attending the scene, the Henrys showed Constable Hales the vehicle over the cliff's edge, teetering on the ledge, ready to top oval into the ocean at a moment's notice. Hales may well have had many of the same initial thoughts as the Henrys. He checked the stolen vehicle register and this car wasn't on there, although registries back in this time weren't always up to date. We're pre-electronics back in this time, so Hales probably still thought it likely to be stolen and just not listed. Inquiries further confirmed the vehicle was registered to a man named Alma Crawford, Cardinal Road, Glenroy. So that was Hales' first thought. Petty criminals taken the car for a joyride and totaled it. But upon talking more with the Henrys and a closer inspection of the scene, a different set of possibilities arose, a more disturbing set of possibilities. Aside from it being an unusual spot where the car had gone over, it wasn't a particularly accessible spot. If someone wanted to drive a car over the edge, there'd be easier places along this stretch of road that could have achieved a similar result. For some reason, this spot had been selected. But aside from this... There were another couple of troubling things the Henrys pointed out to Hales as he continued to view and review what the Henrys had noticed. In a depression or rudimentary gutter of sorts that one had to cross to get to this area, there was a strange makeshift pile of rocks that had been removed from nearby ground and placed in a formation that seemed like a path or bridge. Clearly someone had placed these rocks there so the vehicle could traverse the terrain and make it to the cliff's edge. Secondly, as Hales looked at the wrecked vehicle teetering on the ledge, the Henrys pointed out another disturbing sight, a length of black hose running from the tailpipe up over the roof and into the driver's side window. Immediately, Hales' thoughts turned dark and to suicide as the likely scenario here but he couldn't see any bodies through the binoculars, even with the driver's side door flung open. Hales couldn't help but think, had the driver been ejected from the vehicle upon impact and fallen victim to the depths of the deep blue ocean? Whatever the case, nothing was adding up. They'd have to inspect the wreck to get further answers. Hales contacted the local search and rescue squad in Port Campbell, The first to attend the scene and the one who would make the preliminary descent to inspect the vehicle would be a guy named George Cumming. The local search and rescue squad was made up of volunteers from the area, farmers and the like, and unfortunately they'd become quite seasoned at attending macabre sites along the hometown coastline. 
the area had proven to be a spot where people would come and sadly take their own lives, jumping from the cliffs to do so. Cumming, who'd become reasonably experienced by this time, having had a farm nearby and ascending and descending the cliff faces many times over the years in these situations, met Hales and other crew members named Tom McKenzie, Gus Ward and Les Gunn at the nearby rocket shed. They kitted up with protective overalls, riggers gear, ropes, stretchers and first aid gear before heading to the gorge where Cumming planned his descent. Strapped in, secured by a large pin they'd hammered into the earth, and supported by two other team members, Cumming began a controlled abseil down the cliff face and was soon at the bottom. To him, it looked like a suicide too. Cumming slowly approached the car that was hanging in the balance. It was only about five metres wide, this ledge, and it sloped away from the cliff face into the ocean. The thunderous ocean smashed into the ledge, and Cumming really had to watch his step. If he fell, he'd likely succumb to the freezing temperatures or be pulverised when the tide threw him into the rocks. But the experienced rescue worker made it look easy, at least from up top where Hales and the other crew members observed. Cumming edged closer. The car, smashed in at the front from its nosedive, had about an entire third of its body hanging over the edge. As he approached, Cumming could see quite a lot of debris scattered around on the rocks, stuff that had flown out of the vehicle upon impact. A roll of electrical tape, a chewed apple, a man's slip-on plastic shoe, smashed biscuits and obviously glass and metal from within the car itself. Interestingly, there were also numerous live 22 caliber bullet cartridges on the ground nearby. Cumming could also see the hose, clearly fitted over the exhaust pipe, running up over the roof of the car where it had been tied to the roof rack to secure it, before being jammed into the driver's window and into the cabin. The window was wound up as far as it could go to secure the hose and bits of rags or clothing had been shoved into the open parts of the window either side to plug any gaps. So to coming, this was seeming pretty obvious. Someone had clearly done a thorough job and planned this thing out to a T. As coming carefully circled the vehicle trying to see inside, it didn't get any easier for him to see much of anything. The impact had been so great that it looked like everything in the car had been pushed forward, understandably. Things from the boot even were visible in the front, things like gumboots and a toolbox and a spare car battery. There were also tarpaulins with blankets jumbled beneath it with numerous plastic containers, and the structural integrity of the car was obviously severely compromised. Steering column busted and shoved up into the roof, seats pushed forward. A real shambles of a sight for Cumming, and extremely difficult to make out anything inside. Cumming's radio crackled to life, and Hales asked if there were any signs of life or any bodies visible, to which Cumming replied in the negative. Hales wanted something retrieved from within the vehicle for evidence in case it toppled over during the night. With daylight quickly running out, they'd have to organise a night watch and attempt to retrieve the vehicle tomorrow. Cumming was uneasy about taking anything from the car in case it went over. He didn't want to be responsible for that. But Constable Hales was insistent. Cumming moved to a spot that seemed the most feasible for entry, but he had to open the door. He did so, breathing deeply and nervously as he did, 
and retrieved from inside a cardboard box with some electrical wire and tape, which sat nearby a man's coat and a brown paper lunch bag. It was then coming noticed two things. One, a 22 calibre rifle jammed barrel down near the clutch, and two, a sickly sweet and meaty odour wafting from the car a moment after he'd opened the door, a smell logically supported by the brown smears on the roof lining, which Cumming had learned through experience was clearly blood. Cumming took the box and the rifle from the teetering vehicle and radioed through his findings before being pulled back up the cliffs to safety. With night creeping in, the plan was to set up a watch of the vehicle overnight and organise retrieval the following morning at daybreak, so the contents of the vehicle could be thoroughly inspected. Cumming thought the person or persons within the vehicle must have been thrown from it after impact, but it made little sense when he factored the angle and placement of the vehicle and that aside from the ajar driver's side door, there would have been no obvious exit point. Hales, meanwhile, back at the police station, sifted through the findings within the cardboard box, and there were numerous puzzling items. Alongside the humble packet of sayos were a piece of rubber hose filled with lead, some old family photos, a 16-metre extension cord and five lengths of electrical cable. Each of the five cables had an alligator clip attached to one end and a standard three-pin power plug at the other. Hales, perplexed by the findings, thought maybe it was a suicide, but something wasn't sitting right with all of this. He reported the events to Warrnambool CIB, who in turn reported the findings to Broadmeadows. And this is where we circle back around to Constable McCarty's first visit out to the dark and quiet Crawford household. This was just after 6pm that Broadmeadows sent Constable McCarty around for a visit that at this stage was really just a call to see if Elmer Crawford knew his vehicle was missing and that it had been found wrecked at the bottom of Lockhart Gorge, quite some distance away. But as we know, the place was completely dark, everything closed and turned off. McCarty did think it was strange that a loaf of bread had been left out, presumably by the local baker, but the bread was stale now. It hadn't been taken inside, and indeed the change left by the baker was still on the porch, sitting in a glass next to the loaf of bread. McCarty canvassed neighbouring properties, but gleaned little as to where the family might be, other than the odd mention that they knew that Alma Crawford had been on holidays recently. Reports of his finding obviously piqued detectives' interests and they began digging further. Checks would discover that Alma Crawford was also the registered owner of a small motor scooter. And this next bit was a bit unusual to me, but could be a sign of resourcing at the time, perhaps. Police then contacted neighbours of the Crawfords in Cardinal Road, two women named Jennifer Carter and Patricia McGurlane, and asked them to go over to the Crawford house and check if Elmer's motor scooter was there. So they walked across and checked, and indeed it was in the backyard. They reported this back to police. This was around 7.30pm by this point, and the police continued inquiries. Now, we know what transpires from here. We covered that in the introduction. Constable McCarty and Detective Wilde gained entry on their visit back to the house and discovered what was a brutal crime scene, in all likelihood a murder scene, going by the sheer amount of blood and the injuries the victims would have sustained. 
The full force of the homicide squad would be in action at the Crawford House in Cardinal Road, Glenroy, before midnight, headed up by Sergeant Harry Morrison. And the police investigation at this point really turned from what had been a puzzling vehicle wreckage discovery into a full-scale murder investigation. Still, they had no bodies. But the forensic sweep of the house would yield a number of clues that would take the police in a different direction. Inquiries had concluded the Crawfords had three children, two girls, Catherine and Karen, and a boy aged in the middle of the two girls named James. The room McCarty and Wilde had seen first, clearly that of the two girls, you could tell by the toys and clothing in the room, was quite clearly the scene of incredible violence. The room was unkempt, with bedding, clothing and toys strewn about the place, a few porcelain figures, lace doilies, and an empty potty on the floor at odds with the devastating sight surrounding them. Both mattresses were deeply blood-soaked where the girls' heads would have laid, the bed heads and surrounding walls spattered red, their school uniforms were pressed and hung on the doorknobs of the wardrobe, and at the bottom of the wardrobe was a transistor radio, which had two wires with alligator clips attached at one end. In the master bedroom, which was once again very messy, there were bloodstains on the walls, the bedroom door, and the carpet between the bed and the doorway. James Crawford's bedroom, however, had no evidence of an attack being committed within its confines. No blood. The small room with its single bed looked as if it indeed had been occupied and slept in, but police initially thought perhaps the young boy had escaped whatever had occurred within the house to some of his other family members. But there was one strange similarity with the master bedroom. Both of the bedside lamps had been unplugged from the wall socket. Police weren't sure what that meant. So there was enough to suggest here, just through the volume of blood around the house, that the entire family had indeed met their demise, potentially at the hands of an intruder, maybe someone who had an axe to grind with the family. And whether the police had began piecing this together by this time or not, I'm not sure. I think they were definitely speaking to friends and neighbours, but in my mind, Alma Crawford's thievery comes up straight away. Had he potentially stolen from the wrong person or people? An inspection of the kitchen would take theories in another direction yet again. Blood streaked the linoleum floor and led to a pair of men's pyjama pants that were soaked in more blood. On the kitchen table was a half-eaten bowl of cereal. The rest of the kitchen was so seemingly normal, it took the police another glance at the bloody pyjamas to jolt them back to reality. On the formica-topped kitchen table were also a bunch of personal items, knick-knacks and handwritten notes. One was titled Next of Kin, addressed to Mrs. Jean Crawford, Tamney Martin Island. Another was to the milkman, cancelling future orders until further notice, but it hadn't been left outside. Whoever wrote it hadn't got to that yet. But very interestingly to police, a cutout article from the Melbourne Age, printed on the 18th of September 1969, Titled A Mother's Agony in Depression Years Adorned the Tabletop. The article contained information about a subject that wasn't widely discussed at the time, that of abortion. And this would lead to another evolving theory. It would turn out, during the course of inquiries, that police would learn that Teresa Crawford had suffered what was termed a nervous breakdown, 
but as we said earlier, was by modern standards most likely postnatal depression. That in itself wasn't so much a damning fact. It was just another potential lead at this stage that perhaps Teresa had potentially suffered a mental breakdown of sorts and snapped. But it would also come to light that she was pregnant with the couple's fourth child. Upon inspecting the lounge room, the police found further evidence that supported the contention that Teresa was, at the very least, unhappy she was pregnant again. And that came in the form of a letter that was later determined to be written by Teresa to someone named Vonnie, who we know to be her sister. And this letter was an unhappy one, and it didn't paint her feelings about the pregnancy as being positive. On the floor near the vinyl chair where they'd found the letter were women's clothing items, jeans, cardigan, underwear, etc., as if the person, presumably Teresa, had undressed in front of the heater and left them there. Nearby was also a wig, a blue scarf and some cigarettes. So it was a perplexing scene and at this point, one could be forgiven for thinking that whatever had happened here could have potentially linked back to Teresa's unwanted or at least unhappy pregnancy. But this crime scene would keep talking to police as they went along, through the lounge room and into the hallways, where potentially fresher, at least wetter bloodstains were also found. But most interesting, Sergeant Morrison spotted something so seemingly mundane and innocent, yet vital to the investigation. A small bottle of clear upholstery cleaner lay on the nearby polished coffee table, the cap of which had an inbuilt brush with blue fibres on it, and the contents of the bottle were foamy, indicating recent use. Indeed, an expert would later conclude that it had been used mere hours ago. But these blue fibres on the brush would turn out to be consistent with the carpet fibres in the hallway, where the fresher bloodstains were, indicating that whoever had perpetrated this crime had commenced a cleaning job of the grisly scene, but they'd been cut short for some reason. As day broke, police would discover a blood trail leading to the garage off the side of the house, Alma Crawford's workshop, which during the night they'd not been able to access as it was locked, but by day they'd located a key outside and gained entry. And police were impressed with how well-stocked Crawford's garage was. He was obviously a capable handyman and had an array of clearly useful and potentially valuable items. But findings outside would have police scratching their heads further and lead them to thoroughly searching the workshop's contents, container by container. So Crawford's scooter was outside, as we said, and now the police could see the remains of a fire in the yard. And amongst some stacked timber in the backyard, they located some black rubber hose, which appeared to have the end cut off. Two nearby trash can lids also had bloodstains on them. With the garage slash workshop, the police would painstakingly go through everything combing for evidence, anything physical that might point them in a certain direction, and they'd find it. Amongst the plentiful supplies and innumerable tools, the police would discover a pruning saw with pieces of black rubber stuck in its serrated teeth, a glass full of alligator clips, and a rear seat from within a motor vehicle. But still, no bodies. But by this time, the police were fairly sure where they'd find them. (laughs) 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. To find out if it's right for you. Daybreak the following morning at the blowhole at Lockard Gorge, it was a hive of activity. Police, forensic experts, rescue workers, photographers, and in all likelihood, locals sneaking a peek. George Cumming was joined by two more fellow rescue workers, Cess Bergen and Jack Coxon, on the descent back down to the wreck. To the surprise of the rescue workers and Constable Hales, the vehicle had remained in place overnight. They'd all thought it doomed to topple off into the ocean. Now detectives, armed with what they'd found at the Crawford house the night before, were awaiting the time when the car could be hauled up and finally inspected for more evidence. The rescue workers descended again and secured the vehicle with chains and a tractor slowly pulled, taut and dragged the car back up onto the flat part of the ledge, where it was now secure. Hales radioed down to coming for the trio to conduct an inspection inside the vehicle. Bergen was the first to inspect with coming close behind. He opened the front passenger door and immediately the sweet, meaty odour hit his nose as it had coming the day prior. Lifting the tarpaulin inside the car, trying to make some sense of the ramshackle mess inside, Bergen quickly turned to Cumming and said, I can see some feet. Sure enough, as Hales sent the photographer down and the workers were instructed to inspect further, they discovered a further three sets of feet amongst the jumbled mess of blankets and sheets and clothing. Scattered amongst the aforementioned were nightclothes, a car battery, torch batteries, plastic containers, wiring, assorted tools, bottles, scraps of wood, a man's gumboot and some rope. The odour intensified as the men searched further and as they opened the driver's side door to fully remove the tarpaulin, they saw a mass of long black curly hair leading to the body of an adult female, which was partially covered by a blanket. Upon moving the blanket, they discovered the dead bodies of three children, all dressed in their pyjamas. All of the bodies were roughly wrapped in blood-soaked sheets and thrown haphazardly on top of one another. There was so much junk in the car that, at first, the sheer magnitude of what they were looking at was difficult to comprehend – But soon enough, it would become apparent that the children had suffered terrible injuries prior to their deaths. The four deceased were identified as Teresa Crawford and her children, Catherine, James and Karen. 
The bodies were carefully removed and taken away for examination, and the car was hauled up the cliff face, but not before it was thoroughly examined. Inside, there were numerous live 22 cartridges, chocolate bars, rope, a small engineer's hammer, a regular hammer, cash bags, personal papers, a blood-stained rock, and within these plastic containers, around 60 litres of petrol. A strange find. And there was also a rope attached to the steering wheel that ran up over the car, secured by the closed boot, seemingly an attempt to keep the car wheel straight. A preliminary examination of the bodies would note Teresa and two of the children had what appeared to be electrical burns to their ears, and all three kids had suffered horrific head injuries so severe that brain matter could be seen protruding from beneath the skin and fractured skulls. But there was no sign of Alma Crawford, and the police were beginning to think there was good reason for that. As they worked through the forensic evidence at both crime scenes, Lockard Gorge and Cardinal Road, piecing together the physical evidence, they began speaking with family members, friends, acquaintances and neighbours of the Crawford family. Gone were the theories of an intruder or someone with an axe to grind about Crawford's thievery. Gone was the suggestion that Teresa Crawford had snapped and murdered her children. Someone had gone to painstaking lengths to make it look like that. The hose running from the exhaust into the cabin, for example. But the killer had made one crucial mistake. He'd not sunken the car into the depths of the ocean, like he'd hoped when he tied the steering wheel straight and jammed the pedal down with the butt of his 22 rifle. And because the vehicle had been found, the police had come knocking much sooner than expected. He'd had to abandon his cleaning job at home and take off before they came back. All roads were leading to the quiet man with the lingering Irish accent, the husband and the father, who was meant to protect his family. Alma Crawford had done the opposite. He'd killed them. Only a couple of days earlier, on the 1st of July 1970, the Crawford family had hunkered down to relax for the night. The kids were asleep, Alma was out pottering around in his workshop, and Teresa had settled down in a chair in front of the fire to write a letter to her sister Vonnie. As she finished her letter and sunk into her favourite chair, relaxing in front of the fire, Alma walked in. He stood directly behind his wife, and brought a lead-filled piece of black rubber hose down onto her head. Teresa thudded to the floor, unconscious. He dragged her limp body into their master bedroom, where he proceeded to plug in two lengths of wire into the power sockets, and at the other ends of these lengths were alligator clips. Crawford clipped one onto his wife's ear, and the other onto her hand, the fleshy part between the thumb and forefinger, and proceeded to electrocute his wife to death. 240 volts of electricity surged through Teresa's body, and she died pretty much instantly. Crawford, the unlicensed electrician, had rigged the fuse box, replacing the thin fuse wire with regular electrical wire so the fuses wouldn't blow due to the resistance. Crawford then grabbed a hammer he'd placed under their bed, and proceeded to his daughter's bedroom where the two girls slept peacefully. He bludgeoned them both to death in their sleep. The younger Karen was spared the electrical torture as Crawford was quite sure he'd killed her with the hammer blow. 
The elder Catherine, however, was subjected to the same treatment as her mother with the crude electrical device Alma Crawford had manufactured. As he wrapped the bodies of his two daughters in bloodstained sheets, Crawford caught a glimpse of his son James walking down the hallway towards the master bedroom. Before the young boy had arrived to see his mother dead on the ground, Crawford delivered a hammer blow to the side of his son's head, which in all likelihood killed him instantly. Blood spattered across the floor and bed in the master bedroom, and to ensure he was actually dead, Crawford then administered electrical torture to his son. He wrapped all of his family's bodies in blankets and sheets and dragged them out one by one to his car. He'd already removed the rear seat in preparation and stocked the car with chocolate bars and soft drink to keep him energised on the long drive he had planned. Port Campbell's Lockhart Gorge, a favourite spot of Crawford's where he'd often go camping alone, was about three hours' drive away. He crammed a number of personal and family items he wanted to dispose of in the car, along with the murder weapons and his trusty motorised scooter in the back. He also had the hose and the containers full of petrol all ready to go, conveniently leaving behind a few bits of evidence about Teresa's dismay at being pregnant inside. She'd already had one breakdown. Wasn't a stretch to think she'd had another when they found out they were pregnant. People would think the mother had lost it, and killed the kids and then herself, precisely why he'd used the blunt object to knock her out, not the hammer. But if all went to plan, no one would find anything at all. He'd make sure of that. A few hours later, Crawford was down at Lockhart Gorge, his dead family wrapped up in the back and headed directly towards the blowhole, where he planned to topple the vehicle over the cliffs into the ocean. However, Crawford became agitated at a small detail he'd overlooked. The gutter, between where he'd departed the road and had to ascend thereafter to reach the cliff edge, was quite boggy due to the wet weather, and his vehicle was likely to get bogged should he attempt to traverse it. So Crawford fashioned himself a rock bridge, and he piled these white sandy rocks into the gutter about two tyres wide, so he could get one side of the vehicle on the flat part of the gutter, and the other tyre on this rock bridge, which would get him across. He failed once, slid down into the culvert a tad, but on the second attempt, managed to get across. He crept slowly up the muddy hill towards the cliff edge, stopping well short to execute the final stage of his plan. He threw rope, hose and a car battery into the front. He'd pulled the insulation from the battery leads and terminals so they were bare. This would ensure they ignited the fuel upon impact and blew the car up like a bomb. But as a backup plan, he ran a length of black hose from the exhaust pipe, secured it in the roof rack and put it into the cabin of the vehicle. He wedged it and stuffed the gap with rags. So if it didn't go up in flames and someone found the car, it'd look like a murder-suicide. Teresa, the unstable mother, had killed her kids, then herself. Now, all he had left to do was secure the steering wheel with the rope so it'd go in a straight line before he removed his scooter from the back, taking one final look at his murdered family before sending the vehicle off the edge of the cliff. Crawford stood well back as he did this and took off shortly after on his scooter. He expected there to be an explosion, but when it didn't go up, he wasn't too concerned. It'd be at the bottom of the ocean anyway, The explosion and hose from the exhaust setups were just backups. 
After this, Crawford headed back home on his scooter to Cardinal Row, Glenroy. But he hadn't counted on the rocky ledge. The post-mortem on the family concluded Teresa had died by electrocution, Catherine and James by a combination of electrocution and head injuries, and Karen by the blunt force head injury alone. So the police began to piece this all together pretty quickly, and soon enough, the news had hit the headlines. Newspaper, TV, and there was essentially a nationwide manhunt for Alma Crawford. Neighbours, friends and family added a lot to the context of the situation and established that Alma had indeed been quite angry at Teresa for falling pregnant again. He didn't want another child. He didn't want to share his money anymore. He supposedly had bought these blocks of land in Queensland for the kids, but it seemed clear now he wanted to enjoy that wealth for himself. Teresa had been taking birth control medication, despite her Catholic faith that prohibited this, but she'd stopped taking it, and this had upset Alma. And it was theorised that Alma had wanted an abortion and that Teresa had refused. Two weeks before the murders, Alma and his wife drafted new wills that left a considerable fortune to Alma Crawford in the event of his family's death. But his plan hadn't quite panned out how he'd hoped. It was almost perfect, which happens to be the apt title of Greg Fogarty's book, which we used as the primary resource in researching this case. Numerous tales from people would come out incriminating Crawford beyond a doubt. Tales from the Salvation Army Citadel next door, who told of Crawford's strange behaviour before the murders, particularly his use of power tools at strange hours. This included loud noises on the night of the murders. Other tales of people calling past who'd spotted him cleaning his boot, removing the rear car seat, and damningly, a story from a young friend of Catherine's who'd come to collect her for school the morning after the murders, and Elmer had answered the door, telling the young girl Catherine was sick and wouldn't be coming to school. He was spotted by another couple of neighbours too, pottering around his house after the murders had taken place. One time, driving his car another wandering out and glancing up the street. But now, Alma Crawford had vanished. He was nowhere to be found. Police searched high and low, and as we said, the story was big in the media. Families in the area were stunned by the news, and reports of sightings of Crawford would come. None, however, led to locating the man. One year and three days after the murders, a coronial inquest was held, in which the coroner concluded... Alma Crawford had indeed murdered his family. Sightings of Crawford in the time immediately after the murders came in thick and fast, from Queensland to Tasmania to Western Australia, and back in this time Australians could travel to New Zealand without a passport too. So that was another theory, that Crawford had managed to leave the country undetected and gone to New Zealand. Interpol and Scotland Yard were notified presumably the Irish authorities too, because another popular theory was that he'd returned to his homeland. But over time, the case got old and cold, and there would only be intermittent updates and flashes of hope over the years. 
1997 episode of Australia's Most Wanted was aired on The Unsolved Case and a woman named Alma House was interviewed. She known Crawford from his time at the auction rooms and she alleged citing him in Western Australia in 1994. An article by Keith Moore from the Herald Sun elaborates on this. Published February 11, 2008, entitled Police Hunt Evil Dad, it says... There were two sightings, an initial one at a hotel in the Bunbury area and a subsequent sighting later that day at a fast food restaurant in Perth. The detective said the lady approached him at the Bunbury Hotel and actually asked him whether he was Elmer Crawford. He claimed he wasn't and that he was on holiday from New Zealand. But our witness, who was very familiar with him, having had a lot of dealings with him in the months prior to the murders, is confident he was lying and that it was Crawford. And numerous bodies discovered over the years would also be put forward as being the remains of Alma Crawford. A couple of notable ones were in Canada, where a man's body was located in a stream. Victorian detectives flew over there to examine, but it was determined not to be Crawford. In 2005, there was a man who died in San Angelo, Texas, who they thought was Alma Crawford. Not only did this guy have a likeness to Crawford, but he had numerous IDs on him and had made attempts to remove his fingertips. But DNA testing from a Crawford relative ruled this possibility out. A reward of $100,000 was offered in 2008 for information leading to Crawford's arrest. That's still in place, as I understand. And the most recent and intriguing sighting is from 2017. Reading from an article off Yahoo here, Channel 7 News published this on the 31st of October 2017. It says, Two Victorian detectives recently travelled to the remote Pilbara region following another tip-off on Alma Crawford's whereabouts. They left empty-handed but a former truck driver is convinced he once stumbled across the killer. This truck driver named Nugget Wright said, We started asking questions. It turned out he said he was from Melbourne. Anyway, I said, Where is your missus? He told me she was long gone. He said, What year did you come up here? And the bloke replied, 1970. I asked, Why did you leave Melbourne? And he said, I had to leave in a hurry, I did something terrible, and that's when the penny dropped. I said, you aren't that bloke the Victorian coppers were up here looking for a couple of weeks ago. That's when, according to Nugget, his whole body language changed. The truck driver said the man's head dropped, his shoulders shrunk, and he had the attitude, oh shit, I've told this bloke too much. They aired an age-progressed photo of Crawford too in the Australia's Most Wanted episode, which is also in Greg Fogarty's book. We'll post this on social media for you to see. And the Cardinal Road property is still there today, although it's undergone extensive renovation since. It was rented out for a while after the murders until a migrant Greek family purchased it. And to end on a somewhat spooky note, these owners had a son and he grew up seeing visions of a young boy ghost around the place. And it wasn't until he was an adult when he saw the Most Wanted documentary and his parents confirmed that indeed there had been a tragedy there. So his theory was that this young boy was James Crawford. The ghost never did anything. He was harmless. But he was seen by the owner's son regularly over the years. 
Fogarty compares this case to that of the List family murders in his book, and that guy John List committed a similarly heinous crime, but he was eventually caught some 18 years later, living a new life under a new name, he had a new family. To me, there's some striking similarities with the case of Bradford Bishop, which we've mentioned before on Patreon when we covered the serial killer William Bradford. Just briefly at the start of the episode there, I mentioned uh, Bradford Bishop. He murdered his wife, mother, and three sons in similar circumstances in 1976 and has been a fugitive ever since, made the FBI 10 Most Wanted list. He even looks a bit like Crawford too, I reckon, and I mean that coincidentally. I'm not suggesting they're the same guy. They're definitely not, but it's a very similar case. Alma Crawford would be 89 years of age now if he's still alive. If you have any information regarding his whereabouts, particularly those of you in Western Australia, as there's been a few tips from over that way over the years, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000. So our thoughts on this case, um, an unsolved case and an unsolved case related to such a horrific crime and I guess by unsolved, I mean that no one was ever prosecuted for it. And I've said before that I'm interested in true crime because I'm always intrigued about the why. I want to better understand why people do things. So ultimately, I think I can feel more in control when I'm out in the world. But in this case, it is so beyond reason to me. I can't help but think that there's so much that we didn't know. Surely an unwanted pregnancy doesn't escalate someone to murdering their entire family. How could someone hurt an entire family and a pregnant woman? I just can't even fathom a reason for it. And I'm not sure that I ever want to understand the motives or psychology of why someone would do something like that. And I think you agree, Sean. Yeah, absolutely. It's the motive that gets me on this one. Why? Mm. He didn't just snap because the level of planning and premeditation was serious. How on earth could you bludgeon your own three children like that? So young and innocent. I mean, killing anybody is never acceptable, perhaps in in rare cases of genuine self-defense or defending another. But I personally could wrap my head around someone snapping and doing something to a partner someone unhinged who had issues dealing with emotions and problems, poor communication and coping skills, etc. I'm not saying I'd forgive it, but I could begin to understand it as a motive. But the kids? What the hell did they do to him? If the unwanted pregnancy was the factor for Crawford, how's that the kids' fault? And I just think he'd had enough of the whole thing, the whole family life and the cost of it all, You know, he was a criminal in the sense he'd been a thief for a long time already, but was that something he enjoyed or deemed a necessity to just keep up and get ahead? It's a hard one to wrap the head around. I feel terrible for those children and their mum for what they had to endure. I hope they're all at peace. And I hope Elmer Crawford has been riddled with guilt all these years and lived an extremely unhappy, unfulfilling existence. It's probably a slim chance that he's still alive, but if he is, this is one I'd love to see solved with his capture. Absolutely. Well, that's that story and case wrapped up. Um, It's been a couple of weeks, Sean. Have you had any happy thoughts while we've been gone? Several. Several, (laughs) I can assure you. But one I wanted to talk about was this new keyboard I'd gotten. Yeah. I think I've told you before, I've been 
getting into a few things on like Kickstarter and Indiegogo, yep. backing these new products, which is always somewhat risky, but there was this one place that made this awesome keyboard. Yep. So um, I do a lot of the writing on this sort of Mod- it's kind of offline, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I do a lot of the writing for the podcast offline on like a typewriter that's got a an old school keyboard on it, like yep. an old IBM computer. It's got those clickety-clack keys. Yeah. And this keyboard, they made that so you can sort of Bluetooth it with your computer. So I work at a computer all day, bought this new keyboard. Mm. It's just a very pleasant typing experience, makes me more productive. So nice. that's my, my happy thought. That's a good one. And it's related to podcasts, so it well is. done. Yeah, <laughs> tying things together. <laughs> um, mine is that I just adulted real well today. Um, so <laughs> I got my car serviced and pretty much on time, which is to me the equivalent of like going to the dentist every six months for a checkup, which I definitely <laughs> never do. But I feel like I really have my life together and – if my washing basket's empty, which means that I've also, on top of my laundry, I'll probably pop some champagne when I get <laughs> home, to be honest. <laughs> it made me really happy when I was driving here, just knowing that that wasn't on the to-do list anymore. Car service, done. Yeah, good. Very <laughs> S- Small in- things. Incidentally, I quite like my dentist. Oh, uh, yeah, we have yeah. spoken about this, but <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Um, so if you have any case suggestions, feedback or questions, don't forget you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com or you can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime dash podcast. And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head on over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. You can get things like ad-free regular episodes, bonus episodes, case updates, debriefs, blooper reels, and much more. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us a lot and helps other people find us as well. Thank you to everyone who's left us reviews lately. Well, that's it for us today, folks. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all next week. Thank you. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.